This episode of Halt and Police, The True Blue is about a real, ongoing homicide investigation. The following conversation may be disturbing to some people and is not recommended for all ages. Please take a moment to decide if you would like to continue listening or watching. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Paul Hittinen's body was discovered Friday, May 17, 2002, in his Georgetown apartment. The 54-year-old owner and operator of a scrap metal business had been dropped off at his home by taxi just after midnight following an evening at a local pub. He was found murdered in the apartment by cleaning staff in the morning. Hettinen was stabbed to death in his room. Two days after the murder, his green Chevy pickup truck was found abandoned in Georgetown, not far from his home. Blood samples obtained from his apartment and found in his truck were tested. However, none of the samples have been a match in the forensic database kept by police, and Hettinen's killer has yet to be found. It remains one of the few cold cases for the Halton Regional Police Service, and Detective Ryan Ekrit, a new addition to the homicide unit in Halton, took over the case. He joins me now on Halton Police, The True Blue. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. So this case started 20 years ago. What intrigued you about it? That's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of things that intrigued me about this uh, this case. Um, I guess the biggest thing was that uh, it's a small town that it happened in, uh, you know, which it was a pretty big impact on the community at the time. Uh, we're talking about Georgetown here, 2002. So at that time, I believe there was about, uh, you know, 30,000 people, the population. So when something, something this significant happens in a small town like that, it, uh, it definitely catches the attention of, uh, the community and, uh, the media and, uh, especially under the circumstances of how everything happened and, uh, who the victim was, um, the victim was, you know, considered a friendly person and, uh, had a lot of friends, uh, very social person, uh, a father. Um, and, uh, that's what kind of intrigued me is that this, it was, uh, definitely cold blooded. And I felt as though, uh, there was definitely a lot of investigative avenues that could be explored. And, um, I truly believe that, uh, this investigation can come to a conclusion. So I've given the viewers and listeners a bit of a Reader's Digest version of what transpired. But I mean, I'm sure you can read or listen to that and go, but wait, there's this and there's that. So let's go back to that day. Set the scene for me. What happened in this man's day and take me towards the actual crime. My interpretation of all these events are based on reviewing, you know, hundreds of statements from witnesses. It's from reading thousands of pages of documents. When I first started investigating or reviewing this case, uh, it consisted of about 30 bankers boxes worth of documents here. So I had to start sifting through that. So my, my version of the events here are based on what I interpret from those documents. So I just wanted to make that clear. So, uh, going back to that day, um, and, uh, again, this is in Georgetown, it took place on a, uh, 
Friday. It was May 17th, 2002, which was a Friday. And uh, police got phone calls uh, on 911 um, from somebody who located a deceased body in a, uh, a warehouse, which had been converted into like a living space. And that warehouse was located at One Rosetta Street. It's kind of in the center of town. And uh, One Rosetta Street was, it's a very large warehouse, um, probably about 140,000 square feet worth of uh, space. And the victim had a small portion of the warehouse that he converted into uh, a living space in the corner of the warehouse. Um, The victim had a cleaning lady who attended on that Friday morning and she located him in his apartment. He was lying on his bed. Um, He appeared to be... uh, appeared to have died from stab wounds. He was covered with blood. And uh, so 911 was called and uh, police responded to the scene. The interesting thing is that at first, um, because of the circumstances and the fact that uh, there was a knife involved, uh, police had a suspicion that it could have been suicide at first. That was quickly uh, ruled out. Um, but yeah, that's that's how it kind of started. And uh, an investigation started after that. So you researched it. Um, tell me about the crime scene itself. Uh, well, it's interesting because given the nature of the uh, the homicide, being a you know a pretty violent stabbing, uh, and we know that the uh, that Paul was stabbed multiple times, you would probably have this image in your head of a pretty gory scene. Um, and of course, there there was some blood there. Um, however. You know, despite there being a little bit of blood uh, under the body and uh, in other parts of the uh, the apartment, it was very well kept. Like it, there wasn't any indication that there was a, a struggle, and uh, that was another challenge for the uh, the identification officers uh, locating DNA because it seemed like it was almost um, uh, strategic on the part of the uh, the suspect. Um, uh, it was almost like it was purpose, purposely uh, well kept, and um, the killer didn't make a lot of mess and was uh, very careful exiting. Um, that said, there wasn't any uh, sign of a forced entry, mm-hmm. so locks weren't broken. There wasn't any indication that somebody pried open his door. So it kind of leads leads uh, leads into other investigative avenues and possibilities of, you know, a potential break and enter. Um, somebody who had absolutely no association to the victim and could have just broken into the apartment and was interrupted by Paul. And it was maybe something happened there that went wrong. And, you know, that's just one possibility, but to answer the question, it was, uh, it was well kept. Anything missing? Uh, yeah, just the cash. I mean, there wasn't any cash located. So we know that, uh, Paul, or we believe Paul was in a in possession of a good quantity of cash. He had just won twenty seven hundred dollars in the lottery. Uh, he had just closed a business deal a week prior. Um, but yeah, there was no cash located in the place, which could indicate uh, a robbery. It's another possibility. But the fact that there was no signs of any forced entry could suggest that uh, the person who is responsible for this murder maybe knew knew Paul. So it could have been. Uh, somebody that he was uh, close with um, or had been invited inside. There's lots of possibilities. 
In the intro, I mentioned a vehicle. Tell me about the vehicle. So Paul owned a uh, 1997 green Chevy pickup truck. Um, and the interesting thing about that is the fact that uh, it wasn't it wasn't located at the house when police arrived on that Friday morning after the 911 call. Uh, it was later recovered two days later from uh, an adjacent neighborhood about a kilometer away. And just going back to, uh, to Paul, um, he, never, he never drove when he was drinking. So it wasn't uncommon for him to ask other people to drive him to the pub or drive him to the store or whatever um, in his truck. So he would ask, for example, his next door neighbor um, to give him a drive somewhere in his truck. And this is actually what happened uh, that Thursday night before he was uh, murdered. Uh, he asked his neighbor to give him a drive to the pub in his truck and asked him to leave his truck back at his place. Mm-hmm. The fact that uh, his truck was missing that that next morning indicates that the suspect or the killer or killers moved the truck after committing the murder. I was about to ask you why. Well, that's another that's another good question. It's up to uh, it's up to debate, I guess. But I, I, I mean, one possibility and the the obvious one for me would be that. Uh, whoever the killer was who moved the truck was probably trying to buy some time and assuming that if the truck wasn't there, then whoever went to visit Paul would think that he wasn't home. So they wouldn't bother going inside. And that also kind of indicates that whoever whoever uh, the suspect or suspects were uh, maybe didn't realize that Paul had a cleaning lady that came to the house every two days. So. Therefore, maybe the suspect wasn't wasn't as close to Paul as some people might think. So you've determined that the suspects moved the truck when you did when police did find the truck. What did they find in it? Uh, not much, evidentiary wise. Uh, the truck was in somewhat disarray, uh, just like Paul's apartment, just just like how he lived. It was uh, somewhat messy and uh, disorganized. There was a few droplets of blood in there. Um, but, uh, the few droplets of blood had been, uh, ruled to be belonging to Paul himself. So whether it was transferred from the killer or if it was from a previous, uh, cut that Paul had on his hand, we don't know, but it was, uh, the small amount of blood that was located in the truck would belong to Paul. And, uh, other than that, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't anything of evidentiary value located inside. Would did they have more success at the actual crime scene themselves that led them to have different suspects in the case? Uh, yeah, you would think so. Um, I mean, forensics has developed and progressed in a significant way over the last twenty years, and at that time, there was uh, there was a significant amount of uh, exhibits seized, and there were some samples that were sent off to the Center of Forensic Sciences for analysis. Uh, there was some DNA located there. Um, the The issue there is that because of the uh, the victim's lifestyle and how social of a person he was, and he, uh, to me, it seemed like he had people over all the time. He was always inviting people over. He had a card table set up. Um, so, like, you know, there's cigarette butts and sitting in ashtrays. Um, so even with that, it's... There's a lot of DNA there, but it's 
it's hard to say whether or not that DNA belongs to the actual killer. You know, it's just, there's DNA there, but that's only one step in the process. You can't say for sure that that DNA belongs to the person that committed this crime. So you're looking at all of this that is in all of these boxes. Is there something that struck you to say, maybe we didn't explore that back then. Maybe I want to look at that again. Is there something in particular that kind of got you? I'm, I'm trying to figure out what got your juices flowing over this particular uh, case that has led you down the rabbit hole in trying to investigate, trying to solve it. I mean, we do have new technology now, but is there something that you immediately piqued your interest? Yeah, well, I think my approach on it was, uh, and, and this has been investigated multiple times, mm. so uh, it's never closed. And uh, when this first happened in 2002, it was investigated for a good two years. Um, and then it went a little stagnant for a little while. And then another investigator looked at it and they came up with a different approach and they investigated different avenues. Um, and then it was investigated a third time and a fourth time. And now I looked at it and um, I wanted to just dive right into it. And, and I spent about three or four months just reading all these witness statements. And once I got a good grasp of what I thought uh, all the details were, I started going out and re-interviewing those same people that gave statements 20 years ago. And uh, it, it really gives you an insight as to who he was as a person. And, you know, like even just going to the scene, like driving around the area, driving around that warehouse and driving to the pub that he was the night before and speaking to the owner of the pub where he was the night before. Um, it really gives you a good insight as to, to what happened. So that's what I did. I, I spent some time in Georgetown and my partner and I, uh, we spoke to a lot of people there and um, we interviewed maybe, you know, close to 50 people. And uh, you learn a lot that way. Did you take anything out of it? Did you, did you, did anything new pop up that maybe hadn't been explored in the past? Yeah, you start hearing stories and, uh, and rumors that were going around and uh, you have to explore that. You know, like he was, he was at a pub the night before he was mm -hmm. murdered. So um, you speak to as many people as possible who were at that pub and uh, you start, getting different ideas in your head as to what might have happened, right? But there's so many different possibilities of what might have happened that you can't really come to any conclusion until you explore all those all those possibilities. And it's not just a matter of trying to uh, trying to identify the suspect. It's trying to exclude the people who were not involved. You know, like it's try to try to exclude the people who had some sort of association to him. But at least you can cross them off your list as to being involved intimately with the homicide. How do people take you coming around after 20 years exploring this again, something that they've talked about multiple times already and is not going to be a good memory for them? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty sensitive topic, yeah. obviously. And um, my partner and I, we, we spoke to a lot of people, like I said, and um, the reactions varied. Uh, like the people in Georgetown, like I said, it was a small community, right? So for the most part, uh, it was remarkable. Like the, uh, the reaction that we got and the participation that we got from the community and those people that, uh, had heard about the, the homicide 20 years ago, they were really happy to, uh, to know that it's still being investigated and they're more than willing to help out with any information that they could. Another thing that we were trying to do was, like I said, we were trying to exclude a lot of people. So one way to do that was to, uh, 
obtain DNA from people like on their consent. And that way we can like, like I said, the victim was a very social person and he had people over at his, his place a lot. So there's a lot of DNA there. Um, so the more DNA that we can get voluntarily from the public or from those people that were associated to him, uh, the easier we are to exclude them as suspects. So that's another avenue that we took and we were successful in obtaining, uh, I think, uh, five or six people, uh, voluntarily gave their DNA. So that helps. You mentioned going into the community. There were rumors in the community. Can I ask what the rumors were? Yeah. I mean, uh, like I said, it, uh, it was a pretty big deal in Georgetown that time and small communities. So as you can imagine, uh, the rumor mill is going around. Um, so it, it kind of speaks to who the victim was. So Paul Hentinen, um, like I said, he was a very social guy. He, uh, he moved to Canada at a young age, sometime in the 50s, and um, he went into the Navy when he was 18. He spent a few years in the Navy and then moved to the Etobicoke and Brampton area, and he, uh, he became involved in a variety of businesses, uh, mostly for cash type of businesses, uh, from what I understand anyways. He focused on scrap metal and uh, refurbishing equipment. He owned a lot of businesses. Uh, some of them succeeded and some of them failed. Uh, he actually was considered to be uh, not the best businessman. Uh, I know that he uh, he took out several loans, uh, personal loans from people, um, and uh, he ended up moving to Georgetown in late 2001. That's when he moved into that warehouse there. And at that time, he had a company uh, that uh, that dealt with packaging. It was a packaging company. He would package uh, like liquids, um, and so he had a lot of equipment that he would sell. Um, in regards to like, you know, packaging liquids, there was another business in town that did the same type of work uh, that he was uh, friendly with, but it was also his competitor. He went bankrupt in 2001 uh, with that packaging business. And around the same time, Coca-Cola, obviously a huge company, they had a bunch of plants throughout the GTA and they were tendering out a contract to dismantle some of their plants. And so Paul, won, he, he wanted to get on board and, and win that contract in order to purchase all the equipment from these Coca-Cola plants so that he could refurbish them and sell them himself and make some money. So in order to do that, he needed some financial support. So I know that he, he ended up getting some support financially from a partner and he won the contract and he ended up uh, buying all this equipment from Coca-Cola, you know, for about six figures. And, um, uh, he he was set to make double that. He was about to double his money. So we always he always had a lot of cash, um, and he with that his lifestyle. He he enjoyed going to bars. Um, like I said, he was very social. So to answer your question, the rumors were were all over the place. It could have been like a, a you know a female that was disgruntled with him that he met at a bar. It could have been uh, somebody who knew that he had a lot of cash flying around. It could have been, um, you know, uh, an upset previous business partner. It could have been somebody that, um, who loaned him money that he defaulted on. Um, but these are all just, again, it's like uh, all these different possibilities that you have to explore. And, uh, 
And yeah, so it could be a, a wide variety of reasons. And those were the type of rumors that you'd hear. Well, I mean, I, when you were telling that story, even I'm coming up with, oh, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. I mean, a bad businessman who deals in cash, who lives in a small portion of a warehouse. The living situation itself is rather curious, to say the least. Yeah. So from what I understand, it's just a, it was a financial thing for him. Like he was from uh, the Brampton and Etobicoke area and leasing out this warehouse on Rosetta was significantly uh, less expensive than uh, out, like the the space that he needed in closer to Toronto. So that's why he was in Georgetown. But uh, yeah, like from what I understand and my knowledge of him just from reading on paper is uh, he was, uh, he had a simple life and uh, you know, he was just a social guy and was just, was uh, an easygoing guy. But uh, I also know that uh, there's several reports of him, uh, of people saying that he always carried a wad of cash in him mm. with him. And uh, when he was at the bar, he'd always be flashing cash around. And the other thing that I learned too was that he, uh, he won the lottery uh, the week that he was uh, murdered. It wasn't a lot of money, albeit it was about... $2,700 or something like that. Hmm. But so it's not a, it's not a significant amount of money, but from what I understand, he's the type of guy that would bring that $2,700 to a bar with him. Rounds on me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so you're going through all of these details and you're going through all of these case folders. Um, there's all of these samples. You mentioned DNA over and over again. Um, what role does technology play when you're dealing with something that's from over two decades ago? Oh, it's huge. From my knowledge now, it's uh, DNA and physical hard evidence is what's going to prove a case. So uh, the sciences behind it plays a huge role in it. And 20 years ago, uh, like I said, I'm not an expert in this field, but uh, I know things have developed quite significantly in the last 20 years. So that's another reason why we've, we've been asking, uh, my partner and I have asked people to uh, consent to giving their DNA and, um, you know, we can retest samples that uh, are in the possession of the Center of Forensic Sciences as well. Like they can retest it on different databases and the databases are now a lot more vast than they were 20 years ago. So it's definitely a significant factor. How much do you hold out hope here? Like how long do you keep working on this case? You've spent a lot of time. You've put a lot, you've told me about these bins, 30 bins to go through and getting all this research. You have no notes in front of you. This is all in your brain. So how long do you keep doing it and how much hope do you have in solving it? I have a lot of hope in solving it. I think, uh, I think we will solve it. I, I think it's just a matter of somebody bringing that small piece of information that we were missing and, uh, you know, I, I work with an amazing team of people that uh, we're all motivated to continue uh, working it. Um, so, yeah, I'm very hopeful and I'm optimistic. What led you to do this? Not this case in particular, but go into this avenue of policing. Well, I just love, uh, I love investigating things. I, I look at it like a puzzle that you need to figure out and uh, it's exciting. And, um, you know, there's nothing better than learning about some piece of information that uh, progresses your investigation, it's it's gratifying. And especially a case like this where, you know, Paul had, he has a son mm -hmm. and he's now 32 years old and that motivates me, right? So um, bringing closure to, to him would, would be very gratifying. Well, I mean, I, I wish y'all the best. I hope all of your work does 
come to that crescendo, you do find that missing piece and you put it into the puzzle and solve it. Thank you very much. I hope I do. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. If you have any information about the homicide of Paul Hentonen, please call the Homicide Tip Line at 905-825-4776. Tips can also be submitted anonymously to Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. If you liked what you heard on today's episode, please check out other episodes of Halton Police The True Blue on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up to date with us on social media under the handle at Halton Police.